John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 915.EC1212, certificate number 41769, Penguin Classics. You're a reader. Yes. John, what's your relationship to the, to the classics? Is it like a different vibe for you if you feel like you're reading something accepted in the canon? Do you feel like you're, you're doing something wholesome, like going to the gym? Well, there's the old canon, there was the mid-canon, and the new canon, and new canon. And then there's new canon Connecticut. I I think I've read across all three canons, and um, no, there was, <clears throat> I didn't feel virtuous about it for a long time, because I felt like that was what constituted an education. I, I didn't read books that weren't at least in one of those three. Yeah. The modernist one being the one that felt the freshest and the, and the raddest. But didn't you also come up just also reading for fun? Like, weren't you also like, and yeah, no, I'm going to read children of Dune. Well, there were, I didn't read children of Dune. No, me either. But, um, there are so many fun books that make it into the canon. I mean, everything by Vonnegut is just so fun. And I would call it canon. I was not like a Philip Roth reader, uh, that type of stuff that you would think, oh, that's maybe, but it was just too saucy for me. But like Tropic of Capricorn, I mean, all that stuff, the 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 hipster stuff of the 50s and 60s, I read it all. And like, you know, Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. I mean, I would call that stuff modern, if not canon, then, you know, like what? It's, it, it's something different than like bestseller. Yeah. Right? It's, it's literary fiction. It's literary fiction, and, and, it, and it qualifies as like pushing the boundaries of writing, but also, you know, definitely like fun to consume. It always felt like, yeah, if you were reading something like that, it was like you had already seen Siskel and Ebert give it two thumbs up or something. You know, you're like, this isn't going to suck. And even if it, even if I don't like it, I kind of have to stroke my chin and have a take on it because you've got to have a take on Jane Austen or John Updike or whatever it is. Yeah. And I, I think I had a friend whose mother was a, was a creative, well, no, she was, I guess, a, a like a modern lit teacher in a, a college professor. And she would send her reading lists 
to her son and then he would forward them to me and he would often give me the books. Like he would have the books and then I had, I had, because I didn't have any money, I had that like three or four different pipelines of books when people would, would read something, I would get it. And so what I was reading was a syllabus that had filtered through a couple of different people, but they were, they were varied enough syllabi that I had this pretty thick, regular torrent of books that, you know, like, I mean, by the time, by the time atonement came out or, you know, like the, the nineties hipster books, I had kind of fallen slightly off like the, but do you feel like your survey back in time has gone okay? Like I've read some Hawthorne and I've read some Poe and I've read some, I read all that cause I was a, I was a hardy, I was a, you know, a Western sieve. You know, so, uh, so all that stuff, the, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft and, and, um, Faulkner, like it, it all, was getting assigned to you. It was getting assigned, but I was like actually curious. Like I, I didn't read, I mean, you know, you read Hegel and it's like, do I really love this? It's not that I love it, but I, but I love being able to talk about it. I have a hard time with that stuff, but with fiction, I feel like it's very easy for me to say, not only am I having a good time, but I'm. I'm fulfilling the self-flagellating Protestant work ethic part of myself that makes me think you should, even when you're watching a film or reading a book, you should be doing some work on yourself. Yeah. I mean, did you read Stendhal? I have read Red and the Black only. Right. Did you read Arubur's? Like, did you read the, the, um, like Huysman's and that stuff? I mean, it, how about the Russians? Did you read the Russians? Yes. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's fun. It's, because you because you get to you get to write about it and discuss it even yeah. even if the book itself is like I mean like Billy Budd I don't think is super fun but but you get to and there's some level of tourism to it when you're right. like I think I I'm never going to understand I mean this is as close as I'm going to come to understanding 19th century Russia exactly is reading 800 pages of Dostoevsky or something. Yeah, and you, and then and then understanding it, then you feel able to talk about a lot more things, right? I mean, that, I read Moby Dick as I've mentioned thirty times on this show since last year, and uh, it was hard, and I couldn't have done it without a book group. But having done it, I mean, the, and not just having done it, but the process of doing it and talking about it felt like college, and it felt fun. And it's like climbing fun. Everest. You need a you need a group of people setting up a base camp for you, right? Carrying the heavier stuff, and then a group you can't and, just parachute in. And then a, you know a, a diverse enough group reading it along with you that this person knows something about you know this aspect. This person knows something about that aspect, and so you get so much more. You're because I couldn't get. Every biblical reference, right. every Shakespeare reference. Because these books do feel like work. It really can't be overstated. Faulkner. You're not going to you know. pick up Sound and the Fury or even the Iliad today and just kind of fall into any kind of boy's own adventure. Even the books that did seem like adventure page turners at the time, Robinson Crusoe or whatever, centuries have passed and style is different. And now it takes concentrated effort to turn those words into narrative in your head. Did you, we've talked about gravity's rainbow. Yeah. Um, and finished it, but had to, it was kind of the thing where my eyes have moved over every word in this book and I'm counting it. <laughs> I was at one point I marked, I, I marked four different bookmarks in gravity's rainbow because I was reading it at four different locations. <laughs> like I would read up to a certain point and then I would have to go back and start reading again 
and then, you know, read a little further and then have to go back. And I just had bookmarks all through it. And it was, oh, so hard. I just had a flashback. I, the copy I read was actually from the undergraduate library at University of Washington. I could probably go recheck out the same copy of Gravity's Rainbow. I unhappily slogged <laughs> With through that. Pencil then. notes. Did you read a Ulysses? I have not read Ulysses. How about Infinite Jest? No. I love big books and, and I cannot lie, lie. but. Um, but those seem like kind of self-conscious effort to write the big book. Right, to just hurt you. Yeah. yeah. I, I, th- I feel like you know your Shakespeare better than I do and your Bible a lot better than I do. And those are two of the places where allusions to those, to stories in those books, often I, you know, they go by me and I, I feel the ghost of a biblical allusion or I feel, I feel like uh, Shakespeare's ghost or Shakespeare's sister. Or the Bible's ghost. Or the Bible ghost. The Bible's sister. Um, but I don't have enough, you know, I don't know Henry the Fourth well enough to go, ha, 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 touche. You know, like I, I just, I kind of have to, and, and so it feels, it feels like reading it is kind of incomplete um, because I'm not, you know, I'm only like, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping like a fool through them. Oh, that's what cliff notes are for. Yeah, but I never get those. Here are the four things about the Merry Wives of Windsor or the Book of Micah that are actually relevant to modern life. Now that I have Wikipedia, it's a lot easier, but 25 years ago, you know, I'm just sort of like, well, I get, you know, I guess that was a reference. (laughs) Lol. (laughs) Well, I mean, the world is still full of uh, church-going Christians who think that, you know, you could probably fool a lot of them into thinking that neither a borrower nor a lender be is from the Bible sure. or, or any number of Shakespeare quotes. Well, and um, I have the problem now with movies and TV shows as people are referencing like any sitcom before 1982, I will get every single you know, every episode. But any sitcom after 1982, I'm in the dark. And there are so many middle-aged people now that want to make references to Alf. Well, yeah. Or, or what were the ones where there it was always some guy with a mullet and a bunch of precocious kids? Sure, or, the Full House. Anyway. Yeah, those things. I, I've never seen an episode of Full House, and, and you hear references to them all the time. I'm just like, all right. It does kind of, the whole thing, the explosion of the content does make me a little nostalgic for a time when, you know, you could buy a line of Harvard classics, and they were hardcovers, and they would sit on yourself and... That was pretty much the sum of all cultural literacy. You know, we got it all. We've got all, all 35 of the white men you need to know yeah. from Hesiod to whoever the last one is, Hegel. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if people still read Siddhartha or, or as the canon has evolved, yeah. like where, where is the line where stuff is just like, where it just drops out? And I don't even know. I what, don't either. Yeah. I, I think Jeopardy knows because they see when they keep asking about a work or a person and it starts to go dead. Right. And then they're like, oh no, guess what? Now we we can't do um, uh, Trollope anymore either. Trollope's off. Yeah. Um, so well, the canon is being guarded by people whose job it is every night on syndicated TV. I think people still read Catch-22. They still read Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah. But do they read... Blink-182? Uh, oof. Boy, I've I've read pretty deeply into Blink One Eighty Two, and I don't get those references either because I wasn't a skate punk in the early nineties. No, but you're right. There are plenty of young men's novels of that period, Billy that Bud, are, that right? are maybe not. Everybody read it in nineteen eighty six, but does anybody read it now? The um, 
the idea of classics as modern things that sit on your shelf as, you know, just books as a part of the fabric of middle-class life, decor, um, things you pack for travel, um, the basis of social interaction, book clubs with your friends, um, all this stuff is pretty much a 20th century invention. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody read Emerson in the 19th century and Whitman. Absolutely. But yeah, I guess what you're, what you're saying is at that point, those were bestsellers. That was like, everybody's reading Da Vinci code, you know, (laughs) right? like that's (laughs) last of the Mohicans. Leaves of grass (laughs) is the equivalent of that, except, you know, Da Vinci code didn't get Bill Clinton laid. Um, but Mm. in, uh, like leaves of grass famously. Yeah, no, no, that's right. Uh, I was thinking about that the other day. A girl came up to me at a party in 1987. I was standing in some rowdy party, you know, against the wall. And this like beautiful girl came over to me and said, I bet you know poetry. Will you like just read me some poetry? Like just recite some poetry? So and I was frank. like, this is the greatest come on I've ever been on the receiving end of. And my mind just went blank. And I was like, uh... Uh, and she was like, just, you know, she's just like, just anything, just, just some poetry. And I read the little monograph from the beginning of, uh, Gatsby, the, uh, then wear the gold hat if that moves her. (laughs) And then I think I did, I think I did a little leaves of grass and I did, uh, a poem lovely as a tree and two roads diverge in a yellow wood, like just the dumbest stuff. One line from each of them. No, no, no. I mean, I had the, the hits. I had those poems, but they were just like such like uh, like senior year of high school poems. And what I needed was I, I needed to go deep into leaves of grass, and I couldn't. And I, but was, also I didn't know how to I didn't know how to do it byronically enough. You needed to declaim. Yeah, and she waltzed off. Looking for another hippie. It was too big. It was too wide a field. You needed constraints. I know, but Re- I, request a you know t- request a poet. I, I all the men of my mom's generation knew at least a sonnet. I mean, my mom had a boyfriend that knew every sonnet and could just do the sonnet. Do you think it was for wooing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was for being. It was. It Is was, that why people knew poetry? You had something to say on a parlor couch. It was like Boris Johnson doing his ancient Greek thing. Have you seen him do that? Uh, no. Where he sits and he knows Greek, and so he sits and you know does Aeschylus or whatever in Greek on talk shows as a way of. And it's not. It's it's fun or it's 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 attractive. Is it? But, well, even if it's him. But then you realize, like, oh, this is just, this is just a Bill Clinton. Like, this is a get laid strategy. Except now you're trying to get laid with, by the whole country. <laughs> Our story begins in the mid 1930s in London, where Sir Alan Lane is the managing editor of a publishing house called Bodley Head, which could not be. There could not be a more British name for a publishing house. <laughs> Bodley Head. It's like Godly, Godly and Cream. Bodley Head seems like a. It's a. It's where a uh, Aldous Huxley novel is set, or something. Some mm-hmm. Evelyn Waugh novel is. Uh, Bodley, we're all, Bodley we're all motoring to Bodley Head for the weekend. <laughs> I say. Uh, the board of Bodley Head is all in a ruckus over 
Ulysses, a book I have not read. So much sexy stuff in Ulysses. Which has been out for, you know, what, 15 years at this point, but yeah. never has not been published in England. England right. has had to make do Famously. with imports from New York and the continent because... Paris, ev- I guess, was where yeah, it first... Yeah. Because every domestic publishing house was worried that they would get slapped with legal action. And in fact, that's what happened. In the wake of the Oscar Wilde obscenity trials. Yeah, it would have been in living memory. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, you know... Were those those around 1900, maybe? Yeah, what was that? So, I mean, it would be the equivalent today of, you know, the legal memory of um, of certain kinds of 90s era cases on, you know, racial justice, for example. Right. Uh, you know, the epical kinds of society changing cases. Yeah, what were the precedents from 30 years ago uh, that we still we still refer to, I mean, we still talk about the Clarence Thomas hearings. We still talk about, yeah. Yeah. It would be like one of those. Yeah. And, 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 you know, kind of the adjudications of obscenity back then, uh, two live crew and, you know, the Tipper Gore stuff, you know, for for a young person, that seems like a pretty distant memory. But if you live through it, you see that those are still the reference points. Well, wait, do CDs still have parental warning stickers on them? Do CDs exist? Right. Uh, you still see track listings will say like, you know, you'll get, you'll get 11 vampire weekend songs and three of them will say explicit, explicit. because he says, because Ezra says, God damn on them or right. something. So that's a, uh, that's a holdover, a hangover from the, from the early nineties culture wars. Yeah, I think that's true. So that would have been in, you know, all the Oscar Wilde stuff was very much in living memory back then. And people were rightly concerned about Ulysses because there was new boundary pushing going on in literature and it has sexually explicit passages and uh, four-letter Anglo-Saxon words used as it, it kind of amid, amid all the dense puns and wordplay. I think the fourth section has a lengthy portion in which Leopold Bloom goes to the bathroom and literature had never followed the protagonist into the, onto the pot, onto the loo before. <laughs> Thank goodness that taboo was broken. Finally, you know, if you've, <laughs> no. if you've ever wondered... Did Captain Ahab have nice, regular bowel movements? And what was the color and the texture? James Joyce is there to help out. Mm-hmm. Um, Smut hounds. Never been an interest of mine. Don't re- I don't read Scarlet Letter and think... Poopy books? But Hester Prynne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, I mean, that's why. That's probably why I didn't like Gravity's Rainbow. Right. There's a lot of... Isn't there? There's a lot there's of dirty talk. maybe, yeah. in Gravity's yeah, yeah, Rainbow. Yeah, no, there is. There's some, uh, there's some poop... poop, poop, poop. Poop eating. <laughs> so Sir Alan Lane is running afoul of his own board on trying to get Ulysses published. And he wasn't wrong. I mean, they, nobody was wrong. When the book was finally published, there was a, a lengthy and influential obscenity. But by contemporary standards, it was so tame, these references, or the words even. You mean from our point of view? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I think the I mean, there, words the pe- you would still have to bleep on television would have been found in them. But pe- but words like scrotum and, and you <laughs> That's know. That's what I mean. Don't say the S word on you our could, podcast, Oh, John. sorry, sorry to our <laughs> underage listeners. <laughs> like, but, you know, all those terms that, like there were times when you couldn't say lesbian in a book because it would scandalize the reader. That's right. So there's, there's, there's some of that, like, like over, over scandalized. Although, pfft, Half the country right now would ban a book that had the word lesbian in it just because the moms and dads wouldn't want their kids to know they existed. Right. They're moving different directions in different states of the union at yeah. this point. Um, but Sir Alan Lane decides what he's going to do is start his own 
publishing imprint and which exists within Bodley Head for a short time, but you know, within about a year has branched off. They've they it becomes an independent concern. Um a secretary named Joan Coles suggests that it be called Penguin Books because penguins are cute. And I think there has been a previous book called a previous imprint called Albatross Books. So there's some precedent as simple for as an animal. That penguins are cute? A secretary who just said, yeah, people love penguins. It's not not false. A young artist gets dispatched to the London Zoo and sketches some penguins, which become the famous uh, really? colophon that you still see on the spine of a penguin book today. Yeah, just some, some 25-year-old kid got sent down to the zoo and told to draw a penguin. So it could have been koala books or baby owl books. I think so. An animal perceived to be pleasant. <laughs> mm-hmm. You maybe don't want um, barracu- barracuda books. Right. Or at least until... You know, you're publishing the the anarchist cookbook. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And Penguin Books very early uh, attempts a few, there are a few attempts at a classics line, you know, 10 books of which two are, you know, Jane Austen and Jonathan Swift, or maybe there's some Chekhov stories or some de Maupassant stories, you know, some continental. I bet no one is reading Jonathan Swift now. I bet you that's one that, that just gets left off. There's so many adaptations of Gulliver's Travels. We're all familiar with some of the set pieces. Yeah. But the you know, the seventeenth century English might be borderline unreadable. Yeah. Plus all the Lilliputian stuff, I guess, is just two pages, and then you've got to follow him to a series of twenty other less interesting islands. Yeah, that's the problem, right? It's it's we got the highlights. The movie adapted the one <laughs> yeah. the one good scene. I feel like there's other cases like that in books where like we got the one good scene still. Yeah, like the Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Sir Alan Lane has, well, just just to jump ahead a bit, none, none of these 1930s era lines come to fruition. Although at the same time, you know, there are World War II is a big dividing line here, and you know, if you read Penguin's own history of its publishing line, they say that you know after the war. You know, people were yearning for a return to stability. A labor government is voted back in. Um, and, you know, now's the time to take hold again of the classics of a good Oxbridge education. Um, a, a man named, a classicist named E.V. Ryu has spent the war. E.V. what? Ryu? R-I-E-U. Oh. He has spent the war doing his own retranslation of the Odyssey amid... V2 rocket fire. Sure. And I'm sure that's added some some spice and flavor <laughs> to the work. And he comes to Sir Alan Lane with this idea that, well, what if you published the Odyssey, but in a kind of a new, more universally appealing and modern translation? Like extreme teen Odyssey? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like the- Yo, yo. <laughs> in the beginning, God made a lit heaven and an earth that was on fleek. No, it's still a it's still a relatively state translation, but you know, at this point people might be reading Chapman's translation of Homer. They might literally be reading a 200-year-old version of Homer. Right. And so even just to put it in what comes off as plain unornamented English would would be a considerable modernization. But it was really only 100 years uh removed from a time when most of the people reading those would have been reading them in Latin and Greek, like because there was so few people were reading them, and it, they would have been scholarly people in a time when those languages were still considered yeah. necessary. If you're if you're smart enough to read Homer, uh, don't be reading Chapman. 
Right. Terrell Lane loves the idea. He not only leaps at this new translation of the Odyssey, but he hires Ryu to head a lot. This makes him sound like he's Asian. Ryu? He hires to head a new classics line within Penguin Books, which kind of remakes the book industry. Uh, and Penguin Class, the Penguin Classics line does two things differently. The main thing is it catches the beginning of the movement into paperbacks. Oh. Paperback books had existed at this point. But but as a, the book comes out on hard in hardcover and then at a certain point... That pipeline did not exist because paperback versions of respectable books did not exist. Oh. Books that were in paperback were pulps. Right. They were kind of... Um, Those Zane books. Garish blood... Yeah, they were exciting westerns. Uh, they were garish, bloody detective and crime novels. Yeah. Um, they might have, you know, tentacled aliens on the cover. They might have space in them. Um, and they were low-class, low-brow books for non-readers, basically. Um, you know, there was no other culture. So it wasn't like you had readers and non-readers. Everybody had to read books, but it was... But readers in, in right. scare quotes. Right. Real readers. They're not real readers. They're passing their eyes over space adventures and, and sagebrush and stagecoach adventures. Right. Um, Alan Lane, the, this is kind of the the corporate origin story, which is probably not true, but there's a story of in the mid-30s, uh, as Bodley Head is kind of splintering and Lane is looking for a new new fields to plow. He is coming back from Agatha Christie's Devon estate. Uh, well, that's a fun origin story. Yeah, he's visiting one of his top-selling authors. Right. One of the country's most beloved literary minds. And uh, in 1930s, height of the Great Depression, he's on a train station in Exeter, and he wants something to read on the train, and he goes to the local booksellers, and he can find nothing. Oh. They, they have, uh, you know, magazines, you know, kind of glossy celebrity magazines, and they have these awful pulps. And there's nothing that a, that a person of quality, not just a gentleman, but even, you know, a, a, a regular, a regular middle-class sort with a briefcase on the train would want to be passing his or her eyes over. I, I, was, I, I was in Exeter in the UK uh, on, a, on a spring day, and I went into a bookshop and said, uh, I'm on tour and I'm reading the Flashman books. Uh, and I would like to... You're like the only American who's <laughs> ever read those. And I would like to uh, buy uh, your Flashman books if you have any. And the person behind the counter was scandalized. And uh, Because they, they, were tr they were trashy? Yeah. yeah. They were like, Flashman books. Hmm. <laughs> I don't think we have any Flashman books. And I was like, come on, you're, you're, you're selling books in a college town. And they were like, ahem, ahem. this isn't that sort of a like, bookshop. So they they send you stuff. to the place down the street. That's mostly porn, yeah. but has a, but has a, a tattered end cap of Dune and Flashman novel. That was it. You know, on tour, that was the one time that we always read just garbage books. Cause you're, you're, you're trying to read them in a moving car. And right. Like, and I'm and I'm I'm the same way. Where if I'm going on a trip, I need to I need to bring something that I'm. It's really going to propel me through it. I'm not. Yeah. I can't read in something good for me on a plane, or I'll just keep yeah looking out the window or at my phone. Up and down with the Rolling Stones. Highly recommend. Or I'll watch <laughs> Fast and the Furious 
movie with the sound down that the person next to me has on their seat back, you know? Like, yeah, right. I, God, what is that? I've watched so many movies without the sound because I'm just, I can't just, stop looking. I'll just stare at it. Yeah, somebody else's movie and it's like you There's get the- TV and, and sometimes you try to invent the plot. You're like, oh, Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore are now they're mad at each other? <laughs> but I hope they get together. Pretty easy to figure out what the Fast and Furious movies are about. Ah, they're racing cars again. Familia. I'm feeling really pleased with myself today, John, because I remembered to cancel a TV channel during the seven-day free trial period. Wow. How did you even manage to do it? You you watched TV for a couple of days and you were like, this is not for me? I watched the one movie I wanted to see on this channel and then I had to set a little notify update on my phone to remind me to cancel the damn thing before it became $5.99 a month. I've been paying for an app for a year and I have never used it once. And every week I say, oh, I got to cancel that thing. And I still haven't done it. That's why they want you to sign up for those things. Yeah. Because they think you'll forget to unsubscribe. And even though you don't use the Surface, they'll just keep siphoning money off you for months to come. Yeah, they hope it They hope it never goes away, right? You forget about it. We want to recommend to you Truebill. If you were to download Truebill, it would manage all your subscriptions for you. It'll figure out what stuff you're not using but you're still paying for which ones you forgot about. The average Truebill user saves about $720 a year. You know, not everybody is as circumspect as you and I are about subscribing to things, right? People, I think, in the contemporary economy recognize that subscriptions are how you get the things that you want, but they're, they also are susceptible to a lot of things that they don't want to pay for anymore. And, and companies specifically make it hard to cancel, you know? So you've got right. to know where on the site to do it. Here's all the hoops you have to jump through. Truebill will do that automatically for you. That's why I still get Time Magazine. Peace of mind. They have over 2 million users and have collectively saved them over $100 million. So how do I use Truebill? It's easy, John. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today by going to truebill.com slash omnibus. So... You're saying if I go to truebill.com slash omnibus, it could save me thousands a year? That's right. Truebill.com slash omnibus. So on this Exeter train platform, it suddenly occurs to him, we're missing a market. Oh, here. wait. His story is in Exeter too? Yeah. Oh, did you not get that? No, my thought, story was in Exeter. I thought you were just telling your one Exeter bookseller story. Oh, I mean, no, I've got so many Exeter bookseller stories, but no. Wow. That's okay. All right. And he thinks... Uh, it all it, happens. You know, if we could just be selling Dickens at that price point, yeah, uh, we'd capture this huge audience that has nothing to read. Right, um, that's sitting around wanting to read A Christmas Carol. A casual audience. Um, and he comes up with an idea, you know, his idea of how you sell this to the public is, you know, these should be priced like cigarettes. And in fact, hey, why not? They, they should be sold like cigarettes. We should have vending machines that spit out small pocket-sized versions of our best-selling books. That's a cool idea. Uh, the idea is good. The name is not the Penguin Cubator. No, that's bad. I guess the idea is, you know, as penguins lay eggs, sure. so so they so would, too does this vending machine. So too does I get the Christie books drop out of this. Lay the rotten eggs of literature. So the name is terrible, but and booksellers hate the idea. Booksellers, I guess this would have been the the threatening ebook invasion of the or the threatening Amazon of the 1930s. But this this. This is the forerunner of the of the spinning rack of paperbacks that was such a feature of our childhood. So in the United States, that kind of movement began in the late 1930s, the founding of pocketbooks, and then the war, where all our fighting men and women overseas had to have 
had to pass around these dog-eared paperbacks because they were light and small and compact. Um, that's kind of what created the audience for middle-brow spinner-rack paper books in bookstores. Yeah. Um, in the 1930s, there's no such animal oh, right. in the UK at the height of the Depression. And the first penguin incubator, in fact, does go into, uh, I think it's still there today, a, a leftist bookstore called Henderson's. Maybe oh. it's not there. It was, it was informally called The Bomb Shop because that's where all the incendiary left-wing um, screeds were being sold in the Charing Cross Road. They were the only bookseller that, that would accept this industry-threatening penguin incubator. That's hard to say. God, now now that's anything right. that sells a book would be <laughs> would be oh, so yes. celebrated. We'll, please, we'll take your <laughs> we'll take your vending machines, uh, Simon and Schuster. Toilet paper, of course. And the idea was he would sell them for two and a half pence. That was the the price of ten cigarettes. The challenge at that price point is you got to sell a lot of books to oh, break even. Right, it's expensive to make them. Lane's guys do the math and tell him you got to sell seventeen thousand of a each of a copy. And he says, well, that's what we'll try. And E.V. Rue's classics line, the very first book it puts out, is his version of The Odyssey. And it goes on to sell three million Whoa, copies. Oh, no way! To post-war Britain. Wow! Uh, three million copies? Yes. It was, their, it was Penguin's number one seller for 15 years. It's not until George Orwell's Animal Farm and then the scandal that was Lady Chatterley's lover that um, a new translation of the Odyssey gets. um, So this is an epical change where suddenly all these people who would never think of reading the Odyssey, millions of British people are like, well, uh, my home is is a, is a good educated home and we should have the classics. And here's a inexpensive copy of the Odyssey. So it's appealing to a time when in middle-class Britain, there's a sense that uh, of of class ascendancy or yeah. yeah it's a it's a very class conscious country and it would have been these nice these nice homes would have rows of leather bound volumes right but and, it would and have we been can't a, have that but we can have the same books yeah exactly right right that it, that it it was Os, oxbridge um aspiration yeah and <sighs> and if you have kids your kids will grow up around the very same books that the that the wastrel scions of these aristocratic families <laughs> would have, except the price point is just insanely low. I mean, pocketbooks realize that they could be selling a book for 25 cents that in the U.S. would, you know, hardcover. Hardcovers would start, start at 275. Right. So it's not even the two-to-one ratio today. It's literally an order of magnitude cheaper. It's a tenth of the price to buy one of these budget paperbacks. Well, and as we've seen, it turned the UK into a meritocracy where, where it no longer has any class divisions. Well, it did It did turn the UK into a world where even today you see people of all walks of life reading all kinds of material, literary and otherwise, just all day, you know? You've appeared on QI? I have not. You're thinking of John Hodgman. Right. But, but you've been in the UK and listened to their quiz shows. Sure. And they're even the like basic, and I think this is true. Even in, their comedy panel shows. Yeah. They're so erudite or, you know, there's the, the, they presume the audience is so educated because when I listen to them, I'm like, I, I don't. I want to be seen to be laughing at this. <laughs> I don't get it. What are you talking? It's like a. It's like a, a, a. Like an acrostic or no? What's the What's the crossword puzzle yeah, the, that's the, hard? Those cryptics. Cryptic crosswords, where it's like I don't know enough to do these. You should. Uh, I think the the thing that always gets recommended here is this British quiz show called Only Connect. 
huh. which uh, is just, it's the quiz show equivalent of a cryptic crossword where it's so uh, arcane and recondite. Is that the word? Yeah. That um, like you can't believe it exists, much less is a popular success. Yeah, I, that's a thing that uh, the, the difference... name of the show is a E.M. Forster reference. That's that's how highbrow the show is, <laughs> and everyone's like, "Oh, of course." I've heard that that the reputation in Europe is that um, that high school is really easy. No, high school is really hard. Maybe because that's the weeder into the different Yeah, tracks. and then university is pretty easy. You get into university and you kind of coast because just to get there, high school is brutal. Yeah. And in America, high school is really easy. It's brutal, but that's that's all the beatings. And yeah, it's stuff. just socially brutal yeah, where the right. leather-jacketed thugs are, are giving you a swirly. And then university is really hard. And I, I heard that because when I was at the University of Washington, Every time I met a student from Europe or the UK, they would say, I've done this completely wrong. The right way to do it is to go to high school in America and college in Europe. And I have, you know, like high school is so hard and now my friends are just coasting and I'm over here. Wouldn't you want the hard thing both ways? So many. Well, I'm I'm thinking you got to do it in reverse. Yeah. Go to high school in Europe and come over here. Because you and I are, are, are exceptional, Ken. We are... We're, we're, we're Puritans. Yeah, we're hard workers and we, and we believe in self-sacrifice. Neither of us are Protestant pain. and neither of us have a day job. And yet we are the last <laughs> remnants of the Protestant work ethic. So one part of Lane's genius is just the move into paperbacks, yeah. the, the new thought technology. The other thing that uh, distinguishes the Penguin line is branding. At the time... The Little Penguin. Well, you got that cute little penguin, which doesn't do anybody any harm. He's it's a great name, penguin. He's chubbier than um, than uh, what the whatever's on Signet or uh, right. you know whatever the the cold sterile symbols of the other publishing you, houses. You are. imagine the uh, you imagine the Adventure Time penguin sound. <laughs> wink, right. wink, wink, wink. But can't you picture a Penguin Classics book? Yeah. And at the time, that was not true of. Is there one in this room? If there's not, I would be surprised. There's probably one on the table. I can see black and orange. Like, I love them so much that when I'm at a, a bookstore new or used, like, my eyes will gravitate to to the black and orange of a, of the current post-2002 Penguin Classics brand. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I probably have, I mean, I have, I don't, I couldn't find one on that shelf, but I have so many. I was looking for something weird the other day. Oh, it might have been The Longest Journey, speaking of Ian Forster. It might have been an Ian Forster I'd never read. And I had, uh, was watching something that had references to it. And I was like, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go by The Longest Journey. And the bookstore did not have the Penguin Classics version. It had some kind of ugly Ballantine or which, by the way, was another Allen Lane innovation. Um, but I had some other uglier paperback, and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm holding out for orange and black, baby. Yeah, I was looking for Hannah Arendt the other day, and I feel like I know I have it in a box, and I just couldn't find it digging in. I bet you it's a penguin. I was looking for Hannah Arendt, and I knew I had her in a box somewhere. <laughs> That's where she went. So at the time, publishers of anything, novels, nonfiction, no matter what it was, would um, you'd advertise, and rightly so, I think, the novelist or the title. You'd be like, yay, this is the new Agatha Christie, or yay, this is Oliver Twist, we all love this. And Lane's idea was, no, we can create, this is kind of the, the 20th century, beginning of the Mad Men century, we can create branding awareness of a line. Um, 
our our covers emphasize nothing but their penguin classicsness. So the early ones, I mean, today there's a mix of penguin uh, branding with an actual painting or photograph or whatever that conveys the content of the novel. At the time, the penguin covers were just stripes and a and a big penguin logo. The title which would always be in Gil Sands, this beautiful, one of these beautiful sans-serif British typefaces that, you know, you still see in... Yeah. It's a ripoff of Johnston. It's a ripoff of Johnston, which was um, created, I believe, for the London Underground. That, oh. that beautiful font you see on oh, underground yeah. signage. Um, that was not in the public domain. I think it may have, it may have been, like, government-owned. So uh, Johnston's student, uh, Eric... Gill, who maybe should be his own omnibus just because of his awful private life, um, <laughs> invented this kind of knockoff font, which is the sans serif font you see on on Penguin books. Uh, so you had the title in that, and then you had the the Penguin logo, and there would be a white stripe, but then there would be a color coded uh, set of stripes for what kind of book it was. So you could see at a glance: drama is red, world affairs are gray, oh cool, essays are purple, travel is. Cerise, which I guess is a different, more pinkish red. My daughter referred to Sans Serif yesterday. She knows her. Well, she so she's been exploring fonts on Google Font because she. That's she the, the beauty of the yeah of the internet age is that kids learn typography as they learn to draw, basically. So she she called me into a room and she was like, "I'd like you to see my favorite fonts," and she had twenty fonts, you know, pulled aside. And she was like, I think I'm going to make this my font for all writing. And I said, well, sweetheart, it's a wonderful font for your signature or for headings. But there's a reason that we read uh, writing in a, in a more... What was it about? It would have been hard to read. Just on... hard. It's, she had some cursive, yeah. you know. And I was like, we, you know, we, we standardize... Uh, uh, typefaces so that it's so we can breeze through the reading. And she said, Oh, you mean sans serif? And I was like, Well, yes, darling, I do mean that. And she's probably picturing some awful Helvetica, not you know, she's picturing Ariel. No, she had it right there, you know, she had it. Uh, yeah, but she, you know, she her the font that she wanted was called like Indie Princess or something, some crazy font. <laughs> um, but man, I love those kind of just 30s era British sans serif fonts that they, they still stuck with, you know, it's still know. all their signage today. Did you go through a, uh, typography phase in the nineties? Oh, absolutely. You I, did. Yeah. I was, I think I may have said this before. I was the editor of my high school yearbook oh. and they didn't have desktop publishing software, but I did at home yeah. on my Atari ST. Aren't you fancy? So I ended up printing most of the thing at home and, uh, you know, it's kind of where I, fell for my favorite fonts. Yeah. Like I still like Garamond today, even though it's a little eccentric just because I liked it then, so much then. Did you get into all those broken typefaces where it was like intentionally like so artistic that it was unreadable? Worse than that. I used what is today <laughs> referred to as the room font uh -huh. as a, uh, as a subject heading font for, I think maybe the seniors section of my high school yearbook. And you'll know it when you see it. I mean, it's used in the, in the famously bad movie, the room it's called review i believe is that the real name for this font yes so this is now kind of a hated font today but oh man, yeah Oof. but in the early 90s i was like this is going to look very slick on some titles uh -huh. you know because you would 
we had never had access to this stuff. And sure. we were like kids in a toy store. We didn't know that papyrus was going to look hack when we saw it on our on our 30th Euro menu, you all, know? All of those wonderful uh, Comic Sans fonts uh, on 8-bit eight, eight graphic uh, websites. <laughs> John, Omnibus listeners already know about your uh, diving helmet and uh, fishing net store. Absolutely. Do you have any plans to expand in the new year by hiring new employees? Well, that would be my goal, right? Once you corner the market on old fishing helmets, you're going to want to expand to all the ports of of the Americas and then ultimately the world. You're going to need comely salespeople to, mm-hmm. to, to model the mm-hmm. diving helmets while wearing perhaps very little else. But also I would like them to be well-versed in diving and scuba and fishing. The, the histories thereof. It's going to be hard to staff these stores, in other words. <laughs> it's a tricky hiring problem, John, but let me recommend to you Indeed. Indeed is the hiring partner that will let you attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Do you think Indeed's going to be able to help me hire such a skilled but also comely staff? Absolutely. You are guaranteed to find quality applicants faster because, you know, you'd spend hours on multiple job sites trying to find people with the right skills, but Indeed will do all that for you. Every step of the hiring process, they have time-saving tools like Instant Match available to you. I'm looking for someone to partner with me Uh, to get a short list of quality candidates with resumes that match my job description. Now, can I invite them to apply right away through Indeed? It's hard to believe how lucky you are, John. That's exactly the service Indeed provides. And you know what? I've got a new offer that you should be aware of. Well, you seem like you're about to give me some inside skinny here. If your diving helmet empire takes off, you can start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit. To upgrade your job, post at Indeed.com slash Omnibus. That offer is valid through March 31st. 2022. In the new year. So you're saying if I go to Indeed.com slash Omnibus, I can claim a $75 credit before March 31st? That's right, at Indeed.com slash Omnibus. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. So the font drew the line together. Uh, Lane got a... German designer called Jan Tischold, uh, who specified, you know, kind of this eccentric character spacing and line spacing. Oh, and to finish the colors, crime and mystery in green, biographies in blue, miscellaneous in yellow. There was even a color for miscellaneous. And famously, fiction was orange. How did I not know about this? I guess orange was the majority of what I owned. Yeah, and it didn't last. I mean, those are the very, if you see a, a you know, a copy of a, of a very old version of Das Kapital and it's in gray or yellow or whatever, you're, you're like, oh yeah, I can kind of picture oh, yeah. uh, yeah. uh, Aldous Huxley novel or Orwell novel looking like this, you know, first printing of 1984 or something. Did but, you have um, a favorite used bookstore? In Seattle? Yeah. Yeah, were, absolutely. Were you a Twice Sold Tales person? I still like Twice Sold Tales because of the cats. Yeah. Uh, I feel like as a kid... I spent days in there. Magus Books, which is still oh, yeah. hanging on, uh, hanging on. Because, you know, when I was at UW, right. hanging on on the Ave. And there were a bunch on, like, 4th, I want to say, downtown mm-hmm. that are no longer there. Like the architecture... Oh, no, that's down on... That's between 1st and 2nd. But, like, the architecture bookstores and the the weird bookstores that also sold jazz sides and... There were a lot of those in Pioneer When Square. real estate was cheap, yeah, you know, there were, I still love that smell of used bookstores. Yeah, me too. Um, Even the ones without cats, or maybe especially the ones a, Yeah, it's a different cats. smell. 
I mean, that, that cover has changed a few times over the year, it, it, years. In 1961, um, Penguin brought in an Italian designer named Germano Facetti who, who instituted the more iconic, what, what they call the black classics, where the cover is no longer white and the highlight color. It's the highlight color on black. a black background, which is... Which I guess they, what I know. Yeah, and they got away from it a couple times. There's kind of a weird 90s interregnum of... Uh, of lighter colored covers that I always put back on the shelf. But in 2002, they brought back the black classics and they look great. And the whole idea was you'll build them. You know, if you, if you know the brand, you'll build a middle-class home library of all your favorites and you'll like the spine, um, homogeneity. And, you know, in many cases they, um, they followed the Odyssey. They followed the precedent of their version of the Odyssey by commissioning new, translations of, of fusty old books. So that's oh, cool. why you get somebody like Dorothy Sayers or Robert Graves, you know, kind of a big name of the time taking a whack at, at Dante or, or whatever. And, and that got it more readable versions in more homes. And then, you know, dozens of sublines over the years, you know, you had the, the penguin modern classics and there was a line of Peng- the penguin American library. And the, when they got into American fiction and, you know, that continues Today, uh, there's, um, you know, some of them are attempts to broaden the canon. You know, in 2019, they got a lot of press for, you know, the Penguin Asian American masterpieces, which then led to some controversy. It turned out that um, one of the novels they published was the first account of of an American internment camp of wartime era Japanese. Um, But because it had been written by an internee, there had been copyright problems. And so even though in the U.S., the University of Washington Press brought it back into print and has sold, you know, just some insane number for an academic press. You know, they sold hundreds of thousands of copies of this book, and it's, you know, now kind of a a signed classic. Um, It had first been published in Japan, and nobody had gotten the European copyright. So Penguin found out they could put it out in the public domain and not pay a penny. So they put out their own classy version of this for free, basically, not paying any author or estate or publisher. Some of the new sublines have more innovative designs, um, like the classic, what we think of as the classic black and orange cover has been replaced by, uh, you know, for the 60th anniversary, they did designer classics where they had famous designers of different kinds, fashion, decor, whatever, um, do their own cover. So if you want to see Manola Blahnik's Madame Bovary cover, oh wow, you know, there's that. Like a BMW the BMW artist yeah, series some, race cars. Some car designer uh, deciding what um, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea should look like, or whatever. Uh, they more recently, have you seen these literary ink ones where the covers are are tattoo designs? They had tattoo artists oh. design a cover, and so basically, it's the same thing. You're getting coll- collectors and completists to be like, well, I guess normally I wouldn't be buying Bridget Jones Diary and this David Foster Wallace collection and from Russia with love, but they all have these new tattoo themed covers. Well, and also maybe it's another example of trying to popularize the books by, by extreme teen Bibling them. Uh, I mean, that's exactly what it is, I think. And and, uh, I think when they saw a lot of the market going to Graphica, you know, to comics and cartoons, that's when they came out with the penguin illustrated classics, graphic deluxe edition. Now they don't do graphics, classics, illustrated stuff on the inside, but the covers they commissioned Look like mangas. Yeah, they commissioned great 
cartoonists and uh, manga and von Dessine artists. Oh, you get that for Christmas and you're like, yeah. And then, oh, oh, it's full of words. The covers are great. Like I have almost all of these. I can, like, cannot resist one when I see them. Cause they got like, you know, Chris Ware to do a comic of Candide. Yeah, and I think whoa. Daniel Klaus does Frankenstein and you know, all also, the big it's names. really appealing to the Gen X uh, graphic artist fan. That's exactly who it is. And, and yeah. the British version of the same. I don't know if there's a Hernandez Brothers one, but there's a Tom Gold one. Be. And uh, um, and I have almost all of these. But it's it's just an attempt to kind of liven up, you know, what is now just kind of a backbone of fiction. Yeah. It's just the idea that you can, because they're now 1,300 books. Uh, th- there's no official list, but there's like fan curated lists. And it appears that there's upwards of 1,300 books that have been penguin classics and they just created the 20th century home library basically on both sides of the atlantic well it books have always been used as a decorative element in homes but uh in recent years and i guess it's been more than a dozen years now but this this home decorating fad of arranging your library by color i was at a hanukkah party a couple weeks ago that had a a color-designed library. Yeah, I was at a friend's house. And it looked good, it's I had been, to admit. It's probably been 10 years uh, that they you know, ushered me into a library that I knew because I'd stayed with them many times and this was a library that I'd perused and they were like, look, you know, kind of like a big reveal, like, come into the library, let me show you. And they had arranged the whole thing by color and I was scandalized. How are you supposed to find anything? Like, I, you know, I'm particular about how I arrange my books. Sure. I know you are. Um and it was, you know, in a way kind of interesting because you do find things because the juxtaposition is so weird. Like this book would never be next to this one, except they're the same color of orange. And it kind of looks great. It does. I, I really, as a, you know, my Dewey Decimal impulse is just to hate everything about it. But then you see it and you're like, oh, this is kind of a great room. It's pretty fun. And now lately, the last one I saw was someone had arranged their books spine in so you just see the pages. This is a trend I've seen too, and this just makes me want to... It's crazy. That's just saying I'm never going to read any of these, and maybe I haven't. Either that, or it's total Russian roulette. Like, you just walk over and you pick a book based on on how feathered the pages are, <laughs> and you're like, I mean, what is that style of rough cut... Yeah, decalage. Uh, decalage. You, you, you pick a book like, oh, that one looks nice, and then whatever it is, you know, it might be a Chilton manual for a, for a 70s Chevy truck. I've noticed just from years of watching, you know, Godard and Eric Romer movies that in, in Europe, books do not have eye-catching or colorful spines really of any kind. Like, right. the aesthetic there is very much more like the, the branded Penguin all books are beige or something. Yeah. And so you see people with these expansive libraries and it's really just all one kind of grayish color. And maybe that's what we're chasing by putting our book spine in. We, if we had just done the French thing and not tried to be fancy on our spines. I was lucky enough for a while to have a friend that worked at, it wasn't Amazon. It was an early book, uh, online bookseller. I don't remember what it was. Kazaa? No, that would have been something else. Uh, but they had all these books, like trade paperbacks, but um, for review review copies that were just perfect bound in basically cardboard covers. And honestly, like every two weeks, they would bring me a book, or I'm sorry, they would bring me a box of these books that were all bound in the same kind of, you know, like ochre colored or, you know, like like urine colored uh 
Yeah, that's what like it is. Cardboard. When, when you see it in these movies. Yeah. And I and they were all about whatever, the War of 1812. And I loved these books because they were so beautiful together on a shelf, you know? You I've noticed you are really into Library of America. You've bought uh, quite a few of their books. And I hate that they're not that pretty. No. They're um but they are beautiful. They're the books themselves are just great archival. I like how light and the paper's good even though it's thin, so they're great for travel. Yeah. And you can just, you know, grab one book and it's got like, yeah, these are all the short stories of this is the complete work of Shirley Jackson or Carson McCullers or somebody. Yeah, they're but and they just feel mm, they they're they're like something you could put in your leather satchel as you went out into the streets of Rome. And the notes are good. They're not, you know, Penguin Classics are more like, here's a new forward for the new reader. These are very much like, here's the scholarly, here's the list of changes we had to do from the Saturday Evening Post copy to get it to align with the first hardcover version. And But I don't love the way the black... And that cursive... And the, I don't like... The cursive font, the calligraphic font is okay, but it's got like a red, white, and blue yeah. stripe because it's the Library of America and it was designed in some Franklin Mint part of the 70s. Yeah, I agree. I agree that it's... I mean, the first ones I encountered, I couldn't tell whether they were corny or not until I picked them up and opened them. Yeah. I was like, oh, this isn't corny. This is nice. But at first Maybe you're Maybe I should like, just take the jackets off. What, what's the, I, what are they like underneath? It's just the kind of green... Yeah. Uh, Take the jackets off. What the hay? But I have a problem with that too. Well, then put all the jackets in an envelope, just so. <laughs> the um, the biggest controversy with the Penguin Classics line in modern times. I just I don't want to leave this aside. I don't want to. We can finish with this. Is uh, in 2013, Penguin released the autobiography of the beloved singer Morrissey, of which you can't say anything bad at all. Oh dear. Because all his. I've got a list of bad things I can say about Morrissey. Because he's so unobjectionable <laughs> Where do I in start? every way. <laughs> did you read the memoir? Uh, I did not. Uh, you know, we, we read a lot of rock memoirs on tour, but the Morrissey memoir didn't pass muster. It's exactly as I mean, it's everything you would think it would be. It's it's uh, persecution it's ins- complex, it's insufferable. Uh, you know, narcissistic. But it's also just kind of beautiful. It's, it, I mean, it's unreadable. It's these massive bricks of text and six-page, no. six-page single sentences. No paragraph. Yeah, um, but you know, poetic in a way about his about his upbringing in the North. And uh, he insisted when he sold the book to Penguin that it come out as part of their classics line. Hmm. And they say, well, it's n- not a classic. You're you're just a musician writing a memoir. Uh, and it's brand new. And it's brand new. So it can't come out in our classics line. Um, but Morrissey insisted. It was part of his deal. And Penguin had to acquiesce. And, and to the press, they had to say, uh, we feel this is justified because, of course, the book was sure to be such a classic. What year was this? 2013. Oh, boy. And they, it's a classic in the making, I think, yeah. was, their, was their line to the press. And they just got pilloried for it. Because book, book nerds of all sorts who, you know, they you see that black and orange a trade dress, and you think, well, this is going to be um, Stendhal, right, or uh, right, Anthony Pohl, or something, and and, and then it's Morrissey's new memoir, right there in the M's, and the picture is very much like you know, it's it's you know, kind of Morrissey, you know, it's a close up of him, black and white photo, doing a contemplative face, you know, kind of like the you know the Montgomery Clift photo or something on a Smith's cover, except it's him, yeah, and. It just looks like a joke. You know, it looks like an internet 
constructed <laughs> joke. I'm so I'm so squirming at this. Yeah, it was not good for the brand. Um, and I've lent it out to a couple of people, and I don't think anyone has ever read it. Maybe I'm the only person in the world that read Morrissey's But book. you did. You read it all the way through? Yeah. Uh, not because I'm a <laughs> such a blinkered Morrissey fan. Well, wait. But... I, I'm looking at the picture now, and it looks like he's receiving fellatio. Oh, yeah. Did I not mention that? Even though he's famously a virgin. <laughs> uh, I just think all those, that's, that's the, uh, isn't that the aesthetic there of when you choose those kind of Smith's album cover type things? You're looking for a, a 50s or 60s era yeah. celebrity, beautiful man that's having something done to him. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the Smith's aesthetic. Um, but the books are doing great today. They Wow, it says here 457 pages of pure Morrissey. And with no line breaks that I recall. Huh. Now, that's not true, but fewer than you'd want <laughs> for readability. <laughs> but Penguin Classics is hanging in there. Uh, you know, the Commonwealth still reads, even if we don't. They reported a 65% bump in sales during the COVID pandemic, when I, I think that. people were not just looking for something to read when they were stuck at home, but also maybe comfort food and now's the time to read something they've been putting off i'm gonna better myself and i'm gonna read dickens or whatever it is. well didn't it feel like the quarantines not to say that there aren't still rolling quarantines but didn't it feel like that time was a time to to do something like edifying and noble yes. i mean i feel like and almost, domestic yeah right, right. Yeah. everybody i know was like i'm gonna learn to draw or you know, I'm going to make paper crowns. I'm making this, uh, I'm making a leather satchel for myself. Have yeah. you ever done that before? No, but now's the time, yeah, right? right. It, if it, not I mean, now, when? I certainly did a couple, a handful of those types of things. Like, I'm going to, I learned to play guitar way better. I know how to play guitar now better than at any time in my life, including those times when I played it for four hours a day, every day. Honestly, that would have been my recommendation. Don't do sourdough starter. Take the thing you're already you kind of enjoy and have an act for, but never have time for. Yeah. And pour yourself into that. You know that thing where you, you you do something and you're like, I was so sick of my guitar playing. I would pick up the guitar and I'm just like, I'm so boring. I've been playing the same dumb stuff for 15 years. I sound like years. me. Yeah, I sound like me. I, I, that's what I say when I read my own writing. Yeah. And then I then I, I sat and just played the guitar really hard and uh, and got better. You had it's never so tried doing it really hard before. No, well, I had all these reasons why I couldn't do this, I couldn't do that, I can't practice my scales, I could never learn, you know, the how to do things because I was a grunge or post-grunge era artists and we weren't supposed to craft is the enemy. Yeah, we weren't supposed to know how to do things, but I sat and just tried to learn how to do things and there it was. Do things. Well, it's not too late to buy 1300 Penguin Classics and read the full corpus. From uh, from Hesiod to Morrissey. Did you ever try to read the Harvard classics? No, I've. I mean, the only place I've ever seen them is in every used bookstore ever and your house. Yeah, that's right. Which is very much the same aesthetic. I really worked at them, but you just you hit some real dry patches. You know the 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 what was it the twelve foot shelf of books or something like that. Yeah, and you know, you know you've got the complete the complete addresses to parliament of yeah. the elder or something. Exactly. And you're like, well, is, is I'm reading all the 33 and a third books. And yeah. I just got to the Andrew WK one. And I'm like, Oh, is this the thing that derails the whole no, endeavor? I think he's a pretty fun writer. It was for me, it was like the venerable bead or whatever. I was like, Oh boy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that was kind of the, I think that was the beauty of penguin classics is you knew you were getting the same, you know, co the content that's lasted the centuries against all odds. 
but it's been poured into kind of a fanciful, a fashionable new bottle. So you don't have to deal with the fusty smell of the musty paper and the weird off-putting typeface and typesetting decisions. And, the King uh, James Version era translation. It had been brought into the 20th century for you, and it, it looked mid-century modern. And that concludes Penguin Classics, entry 915.EC1212, certificate number 41769 in the omnibus. Futurelings in the unlikely event that social media still is being typed out in the King James lexicon. <laughs> is that, how, is that <laughs> how it gets typed out? That's what... <laughs> That's I'm going to start tweeting the Bible one verse at a time. That's why I don't uh, don't participate anymore, because it's all ye oldy this, ye oldy that. Uh, you can go on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and uh, see what's there. I mean, Lord only knows. Don't read the news there, I'll tell you that. We can make no promises. At Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, at Omnibus Project. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. And uh, find futurelings throughout the galaxy. Hand make a sweatshirt with a with a uh, sharpie pen that says futureling, and wear it out in the world until you meet another futureling coming through the rye, and then send us an email about it. You can the, mail uh, us things. Sorry, but, were you, did you do the Facebook page? Uh, Facebook is a thing. Well, I'm looking at the Facebook page right now, and uh, this is relevant to today's show. Somebody has just published. A list of substrings in literary works that are palindromes. A lot of people probably don't know that there is a 13-letter palindrome hidden in the King James Bible. In the words, there, there was no man even among them. No man even among... Is among a, them? Among. <laughs> He's all... Nic- Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince has a 13-letter palindrome in the words outside be disturbed everything between the u of outside to the u of disturbed outside is a palindrome be disturb 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 there's a 15 Stur. letter one in great expectations that i saw one now as it from the final t in that so these are all unintentional unintentional found art and this is the kind of amazing literary content that you can find from the futurelings on uh, on Facebook and elsewhere. That's lovely. And that is exactly the type of thing and other more uh, more approachable ideas nope. covered by the future links. That is the coolest thing. Um, you can mail us things at P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington 98155 and support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe of fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. I just want society to last long enough for Morrissey's autobiography to actually become a classic. Uh, You know, uh, what about my autobiography? Would you consider it a classic at this point? Because you haven't written it yet. Yeah, but I mean... Are you going to become some um, nativist weirdo like Morrissey? No. Okay. No, but I mean, think about like... All of the podcasts I've done, they constitute a kind of autobiography. A lot of them are autobiographical. You can get a sense of, of what the book would be like. What do you think? Classic? 
a classic, right? An American classic. Think how many shelves you would need to hold your autobiography in that case. If yeah. It's... Well, the, the thing is, if you excise all of my co-hosts and their <laughs> unnecessary blather and just take, and also all of my dumb responses to the stuff that they said, and just take the great... The great core of the stories, it would probably only be 70 volumes. Pure, unadulterated John. <laughs> That's right. That was like I went through Morrissey's book and I took out all the Johnny Marr guitar work. Oh, and uh, what was left? It was it was so much. It was so great and pure at oh, that point. Oh, right. Without the Johnny Marr to leaven it. <laughs> so this might be our final word in John's bookshelf of audio autobiography. All human knowledge. But if Providence allows... We hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the audience.